0: Well, good morning. My name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Gateway, and this is the third Sunday of Lent, and we're in a series of conversations that we have called Jesus Answers Our Questions, and isn't that awesome? Because he does. Today we're going to talk about a interesting, at least maybe controversial topic, So I'm going to ask us today to put our thinking caps on. I'll be talking to your head this morning, at least as much as your heart. And I want to give you permission today in advance to disagree with some of my conclusions. They're meant to provoke you as much as anything else. What I'd like to do today and what I've prayed for today and my goal for today is, first of all, this sounds like the wrong direction, but those of you who are actually worshipers of Jesus... I would like to move your heart and mind toward admiring him today because he is so admirable and the exchange that we're going to be reading about today is him at his cleverest and finest. Those of you who are standing outside of faith, I have really prayed that this could as well today move you toward admiring Jesus and perhaps even worshiping him because he's worthy of it We're going to hear an exchange today in which Jesus, I think, speaks to not just politics in general, but politics in the American setting. He's incredibly brilliant in this exchange, and what I really want to do is expose you to some of the... More of the nuance of the situation, the history of the situation. I hope that it will help you see it in a richer way. It helped me, kind of blew my mind at the very least, and it may even a bit change the way you see this exchange. So I want us to dive right in. The exchange comes in Mark chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look. Mark chapter 12 is in the New Testament, it's the second book in the New Testament. And this is a profound uh, and incredibly clever, really on both sides, um, exchange, and I want you to hear all of the nuances of it. So let's listen to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, and let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. To God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So Father, multiply these words in our heart and in our minds. That we would be changed, Jesus, by your revolution. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, let's start out with a bang this morning. Is that okay? I got an email this week from someone I love and respect, by the way. It was a forward of a forward of a forward. You've gotten those before, I'm sure. And this email exhorted me to, quote, pass it on if you have the guts. This email was attributed to a famous American preacher. It advocated, quote, individual acts of defiance and massive displays of civil disobedience, end quote. It continued, quote, those who come after us will once again have to risk their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to bring back the republic that this generation has timidly frittered away due to white guilt and political correctness. And that was not the worst of the email. There were so many things about this that were troubling to me, I hardly know what to say. So for me, it was a very good thing to turn to Jesus to find out what he says. What does Jesus say about all of this? What are the politics of Jesus? What does Jesus say about government? And specifically, what does he say to the politics of America today? I'd like to start with the obvious. I think nearly all of us can agree that America is more divided politically than it's been in nearly 100 years. It's not just that our opinions have grown further apart, but the temperature of our disagreement has spiked to sometimes dangerous levels. I was looking this week at a Pew Research study that had studied 10,000 American respondents over the course of 20 years, and I want you to see the, just a couple of the charts that were the result of this survey. The first one, Obviously, uh, red is Republican, blue is Democrat, the purple is where they overlap, surveyed in 1994, then in 2004, and then in 2014, and you see the progression of our thoughts. The overall share of Americans who express consistently conservative or consistently liberal opinions has doubled over the past two decades from 10 to 21 percent. And ideological thinking is now much more closely aligned with political party than in the past. Can you see that? Now this might not be a bad thing. We've moved more toward either side. But that may just mean that we've just gotten clearer about our political views. However, when we combine this data with the next slide, it becomes troubling. So these respondents were asked their opinion of the other party. And it could be favorable, slightly favorable, Unfavorable or very unfavorable. Those were the options. Notice how partisan acrimony, that's political party-related animosity, has increased substantially over the same 20-year period. In other words, in each party, the share with a highly negative view of the opposing party has more than doubled since 1994, and those of you who are old enough will remember that 1994 was not necessarily a happy political time in America in and of itself. Plus, most of these intense partisans believe the opposing party's policies are, quote, so misguided that they threaten the nation's well-being. So the dark blue and the darker maroon represent 27 Democrat, 36% of those who believe that the policies of the other party are so misguided that they threaten the nation's well-being. In other words, we really don't like the other party and we're very suspicious of them. The problem with that thinking is that it inevitably bleeds into thinking that we don't like and don't trust the people in the other party because political parties are made of people. At times, it seems that America's political dialogue has turned into a street brawl. Now, I know some of you have come from countries where the politics of your country has cost many people their lives, but but we haven't been accustomed to that kind of environment in America, at least not for 150 years, until recently. In June of 2017, a self-described strong supporter of Democrat Bernie Sanders went to a baseball field where a group of Republican congressmen Congressional representatives were practicing for an annual charity game, and he fired 70 rounds of ammunition at the Republican members of Congress and their aides. He injured several people, including House Majority Whip Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Then in October of 2018, a Florida man was arrested for mailing bombs to various critics of President Trump, including members of Congress, media outlets, and media personalities. Now, whether the packages were were functioning bombs or just dummy devices intended to send a message, the effect is largely the same. American politics has descended into the logic of the vendetta. I mean, I don't even know what to say. Again, fortunately, I really believe Jesus does know what to say. So as a starting point, it's important for us to remember that Jesus lived his life in an environment that was even more highly charged politically than the one we live in. There was an alien government ruling the land he lived in, after all. And into that environment, he spoke a revolutionary word about politics that I honestly believe we desperately need to hear. Now, to fully understand the teaching from the exchange that I read a moment ago, I think we need to see three things. I think we need to see just how highly charged the situation of Jesus' time really was in general, and for Jesus in particular. And then, I really want us to see how Jesus avoided an exaggerated perspective on political possibilities, and how he avoided oversimplified political solutions and systems and even rhetoric. The exchange recorded for us in Mark 12 is utterly amazing. I think this is Jesus at his best. And I think you'll see that as well before we're finished. So let's find out why. So first, let me set the scene. Some of you are going to know this history, but I want us to go over it so we have it in our minds. This will help you nuance it a little bit. This incident happened in the middle of the last week of Jesus' life. He was in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover, which was and still is the highest and holiest of all Jewish holidays. During Passover week, the area around Jerusalem would swell by the tens of thousands with pilgrims and travelers who came to Jerusalem from all over Israel, which means there were also a swelling number of cheats and snake oil salesmen. Because wherever there's a crowd, there's people wanting to take advantage of the crowd. Those of you who know the story will remember that Jesus began the week with a dramatic fanfare, A large crowd of well-wishers, mostly they were Galilean pilgrims, they gathered outside of the main gate to the city on the first day because they wanted to usher Jesus into the city in style. It was probably a spontaneous gathering of well-wishers and looky-loos, but it turned into a parade. And, And during the parade, some of the crowd began to spontaneously sing a part of the chorus from Psalm 118, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And while this was exciting for the crowd, it was a bit scandalous. Because Psalm 118 was a well-known song originally written to welcome the Messiah into Jerusalem. What? So if Jesus wanted to raise the curiosity and concern of the authorities, he couldn't have found a more effective way to do it. You know how they say, no press is bad press? That's not necessarily true. The authorities certainly noticed, and not in a good way. Shortly after this dramatic entrance, Jesus visited the temple area. Now, people were already alerted that something might be up with this weird rabbi from Galilee. But then the unthinkable happened. Jesus saw the temple area, and the entire scene took his breath away. The whole outer court was filled with merchants and money changers, supposedly there in support of the sacrificial system and the efforts of the pilgrims. It was chaos, and it was a blatant money-making machine. For anyone who had the eyes to see, the whole scene was a spiritual embarrassment. So Jesus, who was not your average first-century rabbi, felt compelled to speak against it. More than speak against it, though, he did violence against it. This relatively unknown Galilean rabbi started moving wildly through the makeshift market, overthrowing tables and kicking out money changers, screaming, My father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. At this point, the curiosity and concern of the authorities gave way to suspicion and anger. So Mark adds this commentary in chapter 11, the chapter before we read this morning. Chapter 11, verse 18, Mark says, And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. They feared him, Mark goes on, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So that's the immediate backdrop for the passage that we read from Mark 12 this morning. I want you to notice who the authorities send to question Jesus. And now let's drill down on the nuance of this situation. They sent some Pharisees and some Herodians. Let me explain. I'm going to offer a short guide to first century Palestinian politics for those of us who don't really know anything about it. So the two most influential political parties in the Jewish world were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We don't have parties like this in America. They were theological more than they were political parties, although they were political parties. And they were theological opposites. The Sadducees were like ancient theological liberals who didn't believe in the resurrection. They weren't deeply committed to the law, and they weren't sure of the actuality of a a Messiah to come. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the conservatives. They believed in and practiced the law stringently. They longed for the coming Messiah, and they believed in the resurrection from the dead. They weren't militant, but they tended to believe that a messiah would one day arise and overthrow Roman rule. Beyond these two parties, there were two other primary parties who were essentially political in nature. Their existence depended on Roman rule, but in very different ways. First of all, there were the zealots, and the zealots wanted to overthrow Rome. That was their reason for existence. And and they plotted and planned to overthrow Rome constantly. They were the most serious troublemakers for the Romans, and they tended to be more aligned theologically with the conservative Pharisees, although not necessarily so. Opposite the Zealots were the Herodians, and they tended to be wealthier Jewish families who supported Roman rule and worked very well within the structure which Rome had provided. In fact, uh, working for Rome had made them very rich in most cases. It's hard to know where they stood theologically, but one can't imagine that they believed much of the ancient Jewish story because that wouldn't line up well with their acquiescence to Roman rule. Can you see how the Herodians and the Pharisees were very nearly exactly politically opposite from one another in almost every way? So why did the authorities send representatives of these two polar opposite parties to question Jesus? They didn't get along with one another. They didn't consort with one another. They didn't agree on almost anything. Why? Well, obviously, this was a very carefully designed trap. They were sent to ask Jesus a very specific question, a carefully calculated question, a very interesting question, and a burning question for almost everyone in Jerusalem. It was a very, very controversial question. This was a hot-button political issue for the Jews, especially those in and around Jerusalem. And the priests realized, of course, that no matter how Jesus answered this question, he would offend someone. And perhaps he would even get himself into deep trouble with the authorities, the Roman authorities. Very, very clever. But Jesus is more clever still. Let me explain. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Flattery, flattery. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? There it is. The most controversial political question of the day, and here's what we need to see. In all likelihood, these guys weren't just asking about taxes in general. That's what you may not have known. That would have been tricky enough for Jesus, but but they were asking about a particular kind of tax. Now, there were lots of Roman taxes. There were taxes on the transportation of goods. There were taxes on property. In some places, there were taxes on any kind of movement from one place to another. But about 25 years before the ministry of Jesus, the Romans had levied a very controversial tax. It was called a head tax. It was a tax on your person. It wasn't a tax on the use of Roman roads or the transportation of goods. It was a tax on your being. Now, the actual tax itself was negligible. Usually, the head tax was one denarius, and one denarius was roughly equal to the day's wage of the lowest paid worker in Israel at the time. It was not a substantial tax But the point of the tax was extremely controversial. How dare you charge us for being? So, 25 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, another Galilean named Judas had led a revolt against the head tax. Are you with me? He called on all Jews to refuse to pay the head tax. He led an armed band into Jerusalem, and they had cleansed the temple area. He preached against Roman rule. He declared that God's people can only be ruled by God and not by Caesar. Ultimately, they found him and executed him. Now, 25 years later, here comes Jesus. He taught repeatedly about the kingdom of God. He entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover the head of a parade and proceeded to cleanse the temple. The zealots had to be thinking, well, isn't this interesting? Maybe he's our guy. If he says no taxes, then we'll have to arrange a meeting. Let's see what he has to say. The Pharisees had to be thinking, what is this? Another nut job, and again from the backwater of Galilee. What are we going to do about these people? Please tell me this is not another revolution. We're not prepared for that, and I don't, I don't want to have to suffer through that again. Let's expose him now before this goes any further. The Herodians had to be thinking, stop this. Don't upset the apple cart. If you condemn the tax, we're going to report you right away, right now, and we're going to do it quickly. Let's expose him. The Pharisees had to be thinking, who does this guy think he is? How dare he cleanse the temple? He's another pretender. Let's expose him. So they sent a delegation to smoke him out and to expose him. If he says, yes, you should pay the tax, then the zealots would disappear and the rabble surrounding Jesus would see him for the placating pretender that he is. They too would desert him. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, and remember, They've been careful to ask him this question in a public place. If he says, No, don't pay the tax, then the authorities will arrest him and crush him. That answer would be the same as calling for an armed revolt in their mind. Do you see how clever this is? Are you a revolutionary, Jesus? Should we pay the tax or not? And so Jesus answers Give me a denarius whose image is this and what is the inscription? Well, the image is Caesar and the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of God, ruler of the world. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. In other words, Yes, you should pay the head tax. Caesar minted the money, and he literally did. The economy of Israel prior to Roman rule had been largely a barter trade economy. Rome popularized a money-based economy, and the money itself came from Caesar. He owned it. It's not like a democracy. It was Caesar's money in the most literal sense. So give To Caesar, what is Caesar's? Am I a revolutionary? No, at least not in the way you think of revolution, because the revolution that I'm advocating is not essentially a political revolution. In other words, the possibilities that politics offers, the solutions that politics offers are very, very limited. Jesus was not and is not primarily advocating political change. I'm certainly not saying that some people are not and should not be moved by God to go into politics. I certainly believe that has happened, and I hope it happens more. And I'm not saying there should not be change in certain policies and laws in America. There should be. But I am saying we've got to adopt the spiritual realism of Jesus. The potential for those kinds of changes to affect real change in hearts and minds and habits is negligible. This is not the change Jesus taught about and gave his life for. Do a search sometime. Go to BibleGateway.com and do a search on all of Jesus' speeches about Rome and, and collect them. Or search on Caesar. Search on Pilate. And find out what Jesus said. This is it! There was a foreign, godless power ruling over the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Jesus did not address it at all. At the end of this same week, Jesus would stand before Pilate, the Roman governor, accused of leading a revolution against Rome, and he would say, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. I'm not about politics, at least in the way you think of politics. Finally, when Pilate's hand was forced, Pilate would say to Jesus, why are you talking to me? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus would answer, You have no power over me except what God has given you. In other words, the central feature of this drama, Mr. Pilate, has nothing to do with you. Often human political machinations amount to rearranging the furniture on the deck of the Titanic and nothing more. America is not changing, for better or for worse, because of policy decisions. America is changing because its character is changing. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but don't give Caesar what he's really asking for. Don't give Caesar your allegiance, give that to God. Can you imagine how confused the Roman authorities were when they heard this answer? Wait, what did he just say? I mean, he said pay the tax, right? Did he, did he diss Caesar or not? Wait. If you go back and look at the questioners sometime, and I hope you do, you'll notice how hard they tried to really box Jesus into a corner. This is very rare, but they repeated the question with emphasis. They said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we, Jesus? In other words, they're saying, Don't do one of those rabbi teaching tricks where you answer a question with a question or or you answer with a story or you confuse us with your answer. Just a simple yes or no, Jesus. Should we or shouldn't we? This, it seems to me, is increasingly the way we like our politics. We want it neat and clean and simple. We listen to the news that most suits our own political tastes. In fact, According to that same Pew study I referenced earlier, this is increasingly the case. Increasingly, we are listening to the news that aligns perfectly with our opinions. Not only so, we are, more alarmingly, increasingly making friends only with people who agree with us. That's true of almost 70% of Americans today. They're friends only with people who agree with them politically. We've become masters at oversimplifying our politics. You can't be angry without oversimplification. That's how we like it. If you're concerned about immigration and you're a racist and you don't have any compassion, you can't be a Democrat and a Christian. What are you thinking? We want it simple, we want to know the label. Are they conservative or are they liberal? Should we or shouldn't we? But Jesus refuses simple. Should we pay the head tax, Jesus? Should we or shouldn't we? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, yes and no. But somehow, he doesn't say yes and no in a way that's political doublespeak. He says yes and no in a way that's textured and profoundly nuanced and rich. Yes, Jesus said, give this denarius to Caesar. It's his. But don't give Caesar your allegiance. That's God's. I'm not fomenting a political revolution here. I'm not exchanging one form of human organization and power for another. I'm not offering one political party over another. I'm talking about a completely different kind of thing. I'm talking about an internal revolution that is the end of all revolutions. I'm talking about real change that will ultimately change the world and everything in it. No wonder they marveled at him. Okay, I don't know what this means for you. I don't know what the application is for you. I'll tell you two things that I think it means for me. And you do the work yourself. To me, this means that I can be and I should be a voice of civility. In the current harsh and screeching political climate in America, I can and I should be a voice of civility. And I can and I should be because I have a right-sized view of the importance of politics. And because I'm not oversimplifying it. If I have Jesus' view, then I have a right-sized view of what politics can actually do. And I'm not oversimplifying politics. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16, Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, says, Look, you should always be ready to give a defense for what you believe, but do it with gentleness and respect. And I can bring that to the political dialogue, get gateway. In America because I have Jesus's right-sized view of the importance of politics the power of the real power of politics secondly this means to me that I don't need to join the hand-wringing I don't mean that I'm not troubled by this or that but I don't need to join the despair oh it's all over It's all over because, pick your party, right? It's all over because eight years of Obama rule, we're finished. Or, it's all over because four years or eight years of Trump rule, we're done, it's over, America's finished. I don't need to join the hand-wringing because we have a right-sized view of the importance of politics and because we don't oversimplify it. I got another email this week from someone else. Someone else that I'm growing to love and respect, by the way. The person who sent this email told me about how they are getting connected to God because of what Jesus Christ has done in a brand new way. They talked about the change that this is making in their lives. So, at the risk of being the religious guy this morning, this is the revolution that Jesus is advocating. This is the change that Jesus offers. And this change changes hearts and minds and habits and ultimately culture. Let's pray. Lord, we submit our thoughts to you. Our hearts to you. Our minds to you. And don't know how you would speak or how you've spoken, of course, but Somehow in this, God, I believe that you you have something for us. I pray that whatever you have spoken to each of us, even if it has been an irritant, that you would work it, seal it, massage it into our hearts and minds. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see you as our king. So we confess our tendency and... We repent of our tendency to wrap ourselves in the American flag or in the conservative flag or in the progressive flag or in the rainbow flag or whatever flag. The banner that flies over our hearts and minds is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we wrap ourselves in that. That's what we stand on. That's what brings change. Father, we do pray for the character of America. There are concerns. We have concerns. But today we want to acknowledge that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And it's not about you, Mr. Pilot, or you, Mr. Trump, or you, Mr. Obama. It is about God's sovereign will. And we surrender to that gladly. Hear us, Lord. In the strong name of Christ we pray. Amen. And everybody go in peace.